Today on the Matt Walsh Show, the drag queen grooming events are only getting more outrageous and perverse as two recent incidents show. So what can be done to put a stop to this? We'll discuss today. Also, George Floyd's family threatens to sue Kanye West for saying that George Floyd died from an overdose. Uh, somebody plastered the gender studies department at the University of Wisconsin with posters advertising my upcoming event on campus. Students in the department say that it's a hate crime. I say if it's a hate crime, it's a hilarious one. Stacey Abrams has an idea for fixing the economy kill more people, and late-night host James Corden is exposed as yet another pompous Hollywood jerk. No big surprise there. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, being a parent can be scary. Checking for monsters under your kid's bed, the indescribable pain of stepping on Legos. But one thing that doesn't have to be scary is getting life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life uh, was designed by parents for, for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great quality, uh, quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Life insurance can have a bad rap for being complicated, but Fabric makes it easy to apply with its seamless digital experience. It's all online and on your time. And if you need extra support, Fabric's team of licensed insurance agents can answer questions along the way. It takes less than 10 minutes to apply, see your quote, and then personalize your quote to fit your family's needs. You can be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. With over 1,600 five-star reviews on Trustpilot.com, you can feel confident that you're getting a high-quality policy that is perfect for your family. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. So protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com slash Walsh. That's meetfabric.com slash Walsh, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash Walsh. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Well, you know, it becomes quite wearying to hear about atrocities like this, but the worst thing we could do is get bored of it and just stop paying attention. So we begin with footage of another all-ages drag show, quote-unquote, in Texas, attended and documented by Sarah Gonzalez of The Blaze. Uh, she says that uh, she has more footage on the way, but the 30-second clip that she posted yesterday is shocking enough on its own. It shows a man in drag lifting up his skirt and gyrating around while people throw money at him. And in the background, you can see a child who can't be more than, I don't know, six or seven years old, um, looking on confused and obviously completely disturbed. Meanwhile, the music, which is blasting through the restaurant, is so vulgar and sexual that I can't play the, the clip with sound, and I, I can't even quote the lyrics to you. All, all I can say is that it's a woman rapping in extremely graphic terms about her genitals and about the various sex acts that she wants to perform. So there's a, at least one child in the building listening to that while watching a cross-dressing man dance around with his skirt pulled up to reveal the women's underwear underneath. And this is happening in Texas. I feel like we can't emphasize that enough. That so many of these things, so much, so much of this footage that we're getting is from Texas. It's this bad in Texas. So we can be sure that it's even worse pretty much everywhere else in the country, especially in a place like Oregon, where, as Andy Noe reports for the Post Millennial, a bar is uh, planning a drag show this coming weekend featuring an 11-year-old performer. And it gets worse. Reading from the article, it says, Controversy has erupted after a pub in Eugene, Oregon, announced it is uh, hosting a drag queen event featuring an 11-year-old child. An investigation by the Post Millennial has revealed that one of the child's drag moms, quote unquote, 
was recently charged with child sex abuse offenses. Uh, quote, are you excited for Drag Queen Storytime brunch this Sunday morning? Old Nick's Pub asked in a Facebook announcement. Vanellope is here to show you what, a, what an 11-year-old drag queen can do. The post featured several photos of Vanellope craving McPherson, Vanellope craving McPherson DuPont. That's the stage name of the child, including one where she is uh, touching her chest and her mouth is open. The post millennial is not publishing the real name of the child. Old Nick's Pub is known locally in the university town for being a leftist bar, and it frequently hosts drag shows as well as sexual fetish events. Vanellope has performed at different events around the state of Oregon, sometimes with grown male performers in risque outfits since at least 2018. The girl has Cash App and Venmo accounts where adults often send her cash tips. Photographs on her Facebook page also show her being showered on stage with dollar bills. By the way, as you may note there, this article and others that I've read about this uh, refer to the child as her. But if this is a drag queen, then you would think that means the child is actually a boy, unless they've now started dressing little girls up like drag queens too, which maybe they have. I'm not sure what's the case here, but either way, whether a girl or a boy, drag is an inherently sexualized burlesque performance, and there is no universe in which it would be acceptable to include children, either male or female, in such a spectacle in any capacity, whether as spectators or especially as performers. Continuing on, it says, um, Vanellope's handler, Jennifer Hibbs, is also her drag mom. She uses a stage name Sunshine Ray McPherson and is a longtime LGBTQ activist. Hibbs clarified she is not the girl's parent or guardian, as previously reported, but is the handler for the child. Quote, her actual mother does her choreography so that it's all appropriate, Hibbs said. We wouldn't let her do anything suggestive. It's terrible that people assume that we would let her do that. We're the terrible ones, you see. Not the adults who are sexualizing and taking advantage of a child. We're the terrible ones. It's our assumptions that are terrible. But here's another important detail from Nose Report. It says, on August 11th, Vanellope's other long-term drag mom, Kelsey M. Boren, who uses the stage name Always Craving, was arrested in Lane County and charged with 12 felonies related to making and distributing child porn. Prosecutors found the 32-year-old such a danger to the public that they successfully petitioned the judge to deny her bail. At the time of her arrest, Boren was a teaching assistant for a special education student at Veneta Elementary in Veneta, Oregon. She allegedly told detectives that her need for child porn was like a, quote, uncontrollable itch that she couldn't stop. Now, a few things here are confusing. Well, more than a few things, but focusing just on, on these for a moment. For one thing, the pronoun situation is all over the map. Okay, it's not clear of the various people mentioned here which are actually females, though they all use female pronouns. I mean, it doesn't really make a difference, I suppose. The child is being exploited either way. The adults are creeps and degenerates and worse either way. Um, but that is a confusing aspect of this. Also, I was not previously familiar with the term drag mom. Though from context, it seems that this is just another way of describing a professional groomer. The, uh, quote, drag child is handed over to the drag mom to be groomed and conditioned. It seems to be essentially a sort of pedophilic, predatory farm system that the groomers have set up. So what can be done about this? That's really the question. We've established that this is happening, and it's only getting worse over time. Progressivism does what the name suggests, what the label suggests. It's progressivism, so it progresses, except that 
it progresses in the same sense that, say, cancer progresses. It keeps spreading and getting worse and eating away at our civilization until it is stopped or until it destroys its host. And just like cancer, stopping it is not a gentle or a painless process. The farther along the cancer is, the more aggressive you have to be in fighting it. Culturally, we are approaching, if we haven't already reached, a terminal state, which means we have to be all the more aggressive, which calls for two things. First, obviously, involving children in drag events in any capacity should be outright criminalized everywhere. There, there is no other way. You know, this, this doesn't stop until police are breaking down the doors at these places and carting the adults away in handcuffs. Charge them all as pedophiles. Throw them in prison. And, and whenever they get out, if they do get out, put them on the sex offender registry for life. That man in the first clip dancing around with his skirt up should be treated legally as a child predator. That, that's the level of protection that our children are owed and the people sexualizing and exploiting them are owed that level of punishment. This is something that needs to start in red states. And if Republicans take over the White House, it should be handled on the federal level as well. I know that, um, that Republicans in Congress have just put out a bill that, would, uh, that calls for the defunding, uh, you know, that, that forbids the federal government from funding or facilitating the sexualization of children in any form. And that includes, you know, sexually explicit material being handed out in schools. That includes drag queen, you know, uh, uh, drag queen story hours and all the rest of it. And that's good because certainly we should not be funding or in any way facilitating any of that. But we've got to go far beyond that. You know, this should all be criminalized. Second, we don't have to wait for lawmakers to get their act together. We can act by heaping shame and scorn on the adults responsible for this. Public shame is an indispensable tool. It's one necessary for a civilized society to function. But it's one that we have, you know, historically become quite shy about using. And when I say we, I don't mean the left, because the left, they're not shy about it. They'll shame their enemies without hesitation. They'll destroy your, your life and your reputation if they can. So public shame is, is their number one tool. It's their, most, it's, it's their favorite tool to use. The difference is that they are most often heaping shame on people who don't deserve it. And they're doing it as a means of avoiding intellectual engagement. We, on the other hand, should be making social pariahs out of people whose behavior warrants it. Because we have tolerated far too much. The very people who are the quickest to wield shame as a weapon somehow convinced us that we shouldn't use it ever. No, it's wrong to shame people. You can't shame people, they say, while they go around shaming everyone. The effect is a culture where people can do the most shameful things without any shame at all. Notice how all these places, they, you know, they, they advertise their child drag queen shows, and they're all, quote, all ages drag shows and all the rest of it. And it's the same story over and over again. They advertise it. They put the flyers out. They put the stuff up on Facebook. They, they oftentimes will post their own videos of these things. And then they start scrambling and panicking when the backlash comes. Now, I'm, I, you might think, well, that's, that's an act. They're, they're pretending. But I don't think it is an act. They sincerely did not expect any public outrage because 
they've been able to do what they, whatever they want for so long without anyone criticizing them for it. So they assume that that would continue. They've gotten comfortable. Far, far too comfortable, I would say. And now it's up to us to make them uncomfortable. Now let's get to our five headlines. With election season upon us, big days are ahead. But I can't stop myself from thinking about the good old days, before the world went crazy, pre-pandemic, pre-BLM, pre-the alphabet movement. I guess you could say I'm just missing the good old days, which is why I want to tell you about Legacy Box. Legacy Box makes reclaiming and preserving your most cherished policies incredibly easy. Send in your old VHS and camcorder tapes, films, and photos. Their team sends everything back on a thumb drive, DVD, or cloud, digitally preserving your memories forever. Each kit includes everything you need to, to safely pack and send your records these irreplaceable moments can be easily viewed, shared, and passed on for future generations. Last year, I, I refused to uh, fix my mother's VCR over the Thanksgiving holiday, something I've not been allowed to ever forget because it keeps popping up in ad copy. And to make up for this slight against my dear sweet mother, sweet grandma Walsh, if you will, I got her legacy box so that she doesn't have to keep her old VCR around. And more importantly, I don't have to fix it. Digitalize your memories with Legacy Box. Grab some popcorn and gather the family to revisit the good old days. Plus, take advantage of their special election sale. Visit LegacyBox.com Walsh to shop this incredible deal exclusive to my listeners. That's LegacyBox.com Walsh. By the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention to you uh, and, and, in fact, wish you a happy pronoun day. This is, uh, this is actually International Pronoun Day. It's a day to celebrate pronouns. Um, I don't know if there's, if there is an adjective day or a preposition day. I'm not sure about that, a verb day, but there is a pronoun day. And the LGBT Foundation, whatever that is, puts out this tweet. Happy International Pronoun, pronoun Day to you, whether you use zem, she, her, day, dem. Oh, come on. Day, dem. D-E-Y-D-E-M. So for people with bad grammar, you know, if you've got really bad grammar, that's how you say they and them. And now we're just turning that into its own. Because why not? You can identify as they, them. Uh, he, him, they, them, fay, fair. Pronouns or any others. Uh, this is just a short list of some example pronouns people may use. You'll never know someone's pronouns until you ask. Which means that I will just never know because I will never ask. And, you know, I often hear people say, well, uh, I, I hear this a lot. They say, well, well, uh, I'm not using these fake pronouns. You know, fay, fair, zay, zem, day, dem. I'm, I'm not using that. That's ridiculous. I'll call you she if you're a man and that's how you identify. I'll say that, but uh, I, I draw the line at the rest of this stuff. I'm not going to do that. No, no, you don't really draw the line and, and you will start saying it. Okay, you'll be saying zay, zem in no time. You'll be walking around respecting those pronouns. Yes, you will. You'll eat the bugs, you'll live in the pod, you'll say zay zem, you'll do all of that if you're willing to call a man she. Okay, if you're willing to do that, and you've demonstrated your willingness, and you're willing to go that far, then it's, it, it's only a matter of time. The only reason that you haven't started saying fay fair and zay zem is that the social pressure hasn't yet been intense enough. But when it gets a little bit more intense and they ratchet the, uh, and the, you know, they, they turn the heat up a little bit, 
trying to ram the rest of this stuff through, you'll go along with it. If you're willing to go along to begin with by calling a man she. Which, like, just like we talked about yesterday, that, that is actually more absurd anyway. It's like to call a man she is more ridiculous than calling them Zay Zem. Because at least Zay Zem is like, it doesn't, if you call someone a Zay or a Zem, we can't really say that that's untrue because it doesn't, it doesn't mean it. It's just, it's just total nonsense. You're not really, you're not so much participating in a lie. You're just babbling. You're babbling nonsensically on command, which is also not good. But if you call a man she, you're actually, you're actually participating in a deception, in a lie. You're going along with it. You're saying something that is not true. Which I would say arguably is even worse than simply babbling incoherently. So if you're willing to do that, then you will do the rest of it. All right. This is a report from the Daily Wire. It says, the mother of George Floyd's daughter plans to sue Ye West, Kanye West. I just, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't go along with this. He, his name is Kanye. I can't go along with the Ye thing. Um, anyway, plans to sue Kanye West for $250 million following the rap and fashion mogul's alleged claim that Floyd's death in 2020 was caused by a fentanyl overdose, her lawyers announced on Tuesday. West made the claim after watching the Daily Wire's new documentary on Black Lives Matter. Roxy Washington said she is suing on behalf of herself and Gianna Floyd, the daughter she had with George Floyd. West, who recently changed his first name from Kanye, implied in an interview that aired uh, on Sunday that the 46-year-old Floyd died from an overdose and not at the hands of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who was later convicted of murder. West said in the interview, I watched the George Floyd documentary that Candace Owens put out. One of the things that his two roommates said was that uh, they want a tall guy like me, and the way that he died, he said a prayer for eight minutes. They hit him with a fentanyl. West was referring to the greatest lie ever sold in a documentary by Owens that explored Floyd's death, Chauvin's conviction, the rise of Black Lives Matter. Uh, the lawsuit will accuse West of making the comments to promote his brands and increase marketing value and revenue for himself, his business partners, and associates. Well, this is clearly just totally absurd. First of all, what Kanye West said is accurate. Um, and that is, that's the first, that, so there are a couple of, uh, of easy defenses against a defamation claim. And one of those is the truth. You know, the truth is an absolute automatic defense against defamation. If what you're saying, if you can demonstrate that it's true, or, or you know, put it the other way, if you want to accuse someone of defamation, you need to be able to prove that what they're saying is not true. So that, that lets Kanye West off the hook in this case, right off the bat. And then the other thing too, there's another defense um, against uh, defamation, which is that if the person is dead, that's also a defense. So here we have Kanye West saying something accurate about a dead guy. And they think they can sue him for $250 million. Uh, go ahead and try, I suppose. I mean, you can, you can sue anyone for anything in, in the United States of America. And uh, there, there, as we've seen, there are many people who are, you know, who are quite willing to test that, test, sort of test that theory out that you can sue anyone for anything. And you can. You can sue anyone for anything. But uh, you certainly can't win any lawsuit. In this one, they cannot win. All right, here's a, an article from the Badger Herald. It says, as the University of, Washington, of uh, Wisconsin campus prepares to host Matt Walsh, a right-wing political commentator, members of the LGBTQ and gender non-conforming communities on campus have expressed feelings of hurt and concern. 
Recent targeted incidents towards the group have exacerbated these emotions. So there have been targeted incidents. The University of Wisconsin, I'll be speaking there. I remember the exact date. Uh, I'll be speaking there soon as we continue the, uh, our What is a Woman tour. And we'll be announcing some more dates, by the way, and some more schools pretty soon. But apparently in the lead up to my, uh, to my speech and screening the film at University of Wisconsin, there have been, there have been, tar- there have been targeted incidents at, at vulnerable populations. Let's find out what those incidents are. Upon arriving at Sterling Hall Monday, October 10th, um, people with the Gender Women's Studies Department, someone named Jessica Leeper, found the Gender Women's Studies floor covered in posters for the Walsh event. That's the, <laughs> that's the targeted incident. So somebody went in at University of Wisconsin, uh, presumably you know, a supporter, maybe a member of the Sweet Baby Gang there at University of Wisconsin, went, into the, went to the Gender Women's Studies Department and just... And, and, covered the place in What is a Woman posters. That is, uh, I cannot, I, can, I don't know if I can officially endorse that or not. But I will, because that's fantastic. Um, when Leeper first arrived, she only saw a couple of posters and shed, said she was annoyed but not surprised. But upon further investigation, she found that every bulletin board and chalkboard in the hallway had been covered in the posters. I think we have some pictures we'll put up for you, too. While, while Leeper did not uh, count the exact number of posters she took down, she estimated that it was at least 40. Leeper found only one or two event posters in the other departments in Sterling. So this is, this is the incident that happened. Uh, continuing along, according to Leeper, there's a, a lot of hurt, anger, and exhaustion among the TA students in the department. Quote, any credibility the university had in an academic commitment to providing speakers of diverse opinions is lost in the wake of Monday's targeted act of hate speech. It's a targeted act of hate speech to just put up a poster for my event. Go, you know what? Go back. They took them all down. Go back and uh, I'm calling on the sweet baby again. Go, go back and put the posters back. Just keep putting them back up there. Take them down. Put them up. Hey, this is, this is fair play because the left constantly tears down the posters no matter what campus I go to, no matter where the posters are put up, the leftists come along and tear them down. So this is the game you want to play. This is what we'll play. She continued, Yaf has now, with this action, made it abundantly clear that their goal with bringing Walsh to campus is to intimidate and endanger the trans and gender nonconforming community. Explain that to me, uh, Jessica Leeper. I want you to explain, and maybe you can. You know, maybe you can explain it. But explain in precise detail how you have been endangered by seeing a poster, by seeing a small, like a piece of paper, a yellow piece of paper that says, what is a woman on? How does that endanger you? Can you, can you, can you elaborate? I'd like to hear you elaborate on that. If you can, if you can prove to me that simply, and I don't know how this would work physically. Okay, I don't know what the physical mechanism is. I, I, I don't know the science behind it, but maybe you can describe it. Maybe you can explain it to me. If you can prove to me that simply seeing the poster will lead directly to physical harm or death, if you can prove that to me, then maybe I would call. I would. I would call off the sweet baby gang and say, stop putting the posters up. I don't want to have. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't want there to be bodies all over the place, people that are hurt and dying because they saw a poster. So if you can explain that, then I'd love to hear it. Um, Leeper filed a bias incident report to the Dean of Students. The report asked the school to take the incident seriously 
as a targeted act of hate speech and revoke YAF's permission to use the Great Hall for their event. There has not been any follow-up to the report at this time. Um, Oh, and then we have more interviews with the gender studies professor of the department. This is all great. A student in the gender and women's studies department who wished to remain anonymous due to privacy and safety concerns said that more than anything, they were concerned for the safety and well-being of the trans, non-binary, and GNC community on campus. Uh, quote, we were already upset about Walsh with an explicitly anti-trans project coming to campus. And to me, the event organizers bringing their hate directly to this space just furthers my concern over the whole event and the university's ongoing lack of care for its marginalized students. You know, there is a, when you want to get over a phobia, um, there's, what, I think, what they call exposure therapy or something like that. But if you're, if you're really afraid of something, and this is what they, this is what they tell you in, in psychology, that uh, the only way to get over the fear is to just, is to be exposed to it. Like if you want, if you're, I, I have arachnophobia, I admit, I, you know, it's, it's one of my least manly qualities. I really don't like spiders. If I actually wanted to get over that, I would have to be exposed to a spider. You know, maybe have a tarantula crawling on my hand or something like that. I feel like that would traumatize me more, but I'm told that that's one way to get over the phobia. And so I guess my point is that what I would say to the students at the Gender Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin, for whatever reason, you are afraid of these posters. You have a fear of posters. And I, I think for your own sake, because I am concerned about you, and I am worried about your mental health deeply. And so I think the only way to get you over that fear is for more and more of these posters to be put up in the gender studies department, for your own sake. Okay, there were 40 posters before. Next, we got to put 100 up. How are you going to go through life having this fear? If, if seeing a poster can can cause you to dissolve into a puddle. I don't know how you function in life. So I want to help you get over that. You're welcome. Some uh, updates now from the culture of death. Eric Swalwell tweets this, MAGA Republicans want, a women, want women arrested for having an abortion. This is what that looks like. Okay, so he tweeted this. He said, MAGA Republicans want to arrest women. And uh, so what Eric Swalwell did was he, he uh, uh, I don't know if he's a director or producer on this project. There's no credits at the end. But he's put together this skit of what he imagines it will look like for, you know, abortion to be illegal, what the implications will be. And let's watch this skit together. Yes. I have a warrant for your arrest. Arrest for what? Penal code 243 violation. Unlawful termination of a pregnancy. You gotta be kidding me. That That is my personal business. That's for the courts to decide, ma'am. Your medical records have been subpoenaed and Dr. Landry's already in custody. No, my, my God, you, you, you can't just- You will have to submit to a physical examination. What? By who? No, no, no one's touching her. Ma'am, turn around. Oh Put oh your hands God. behind your back. Now. Why is this happening? Love you, honey bear. We're just enforcing the law here. Elections have consequences. Vote Democrat on November 8th.
Stop Republicans from criminalizing abortion everywhere. Protect women's rights and freedom. Please don't do this. Please. Uh, that's good. That's good comedy there. It's a great skit. It's a great. It's a great fun skit. Uh, just a to- it's, that's what it is. It's like just total fantasy. There's this. So here's the thing. If if they had actual footage. If this was actually happening somewhere, uh, and there was footage of it or anything, they would just show you that. But it's not, so instead, they have to they have to put together this this skit. Uh, and I don't know if you're listening to the audio podcast, of course, and maybe you can follow it all the plot. But uh, the the cops do end up pulling their guns. Um, they pull their guns out. They they, they bust in the house with their guns drawn, cart this woman away. Um, so that is. Uh, fantasy land, right? That's that's the, the, this skit that they've put together. Meanwhile, in in reality, like back here in Realityville, things that are actually happening in that in that world, you know, like the, the universe that we, we we live in, in the country we live in. Okay, in that place, there are actually pro-life activists that are being carted away in the middle of the night by armed federal agents. So that's a thing that's actually happening right now in the United States of America. That's a, that's a reality. So if you're going to be worried about something, I'd be worried more about the reality. Also, you know, there's also the, the reality of abortion itself. If you were to see footage of that, or see a picture of the aftermath of an abortion, there's that reality too. Which is far more brutal and terrifying than anything you just saw in uh, Eric Swalwell's skit. And it's also, again, real. Speaking of brutal and terrifying, Stacey Abrams um, has an idea for what we can do about uh, inflation and the economy. She knows how we can solve the problem. Let's listen to her. You're running for governor of Georgia. Uh, I would assume, maybe incorrectly, but while abortion is an issue, it nowhere reaches the level of interest of voters in terms of the cost of gas, food, bread, milk, things like that. What can a governor, what could you do as governor to alleviate the concerns of Georgia voters about those livability, daily, hourly issues that they're confronted with? But let's be clear, having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And so these are, it's important for us to have both and conversations. We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out. But we also have to talk about what a governor can do. A governor can address housing prices. A governor can address the cost of education. A governor can put money into the pockets of everyday hardworking Georgians instead of giving tax cuts to the wealthy. That's what I talk about on the trail, and that's what's resonating. But let's not pretend that women, half the population, especially those of childbearing age, they understand that having a child is absolutely an economic issue. It is only politicians who see it as simply another cultural conversation. It is a real biological and economic imperative conversation that women need to have. 
These people are so cartoonishly evil. Uh, like comic book villains at this point. N not trying to hide it at all. So she's being asked, what are you going to do about the economy? How, how are you going to help people struggling in the economy? Her answer is to kill more babies. Not shocked by that, not surprised by it. I know that's their answer. These people are eugenicists. That's always been their answer. Um, that's always been one of the one of their their primary arguments for abortion, is to you know get rid of the unwanteds because they're a burden, they're a strain on society and on the economy. So let's just kill them and throw their bodies away like like literal garbage. So I've always known that, but even so, it's uh, startling to hear it said out loud by someone who wants to be governor of a state. Her answer to the economy is to, is to kill more babies so that they're not being a strain economically and financially to their, to their mothers. So there are, kind of, there, there are two ways you, you can look at it, right? When you've got a struggling economy, as we do, you can work to make the country more livable for people. You know, you can work to make it easier for people to live. Um, you, you can do that. Or you could just start getting rid of the people. Two approaches. Democrats take the latter. Because they are really, truly anti-life and anti-human. That's not, that's not uh, just a pejorative, you know, that, that we throw at them. It is actually true. They are, in principle, anti-human and anti-life. They see it as a bad thing. They see it as a negative thing. They see it as a strain. They see, they see life as a problem that has to be solved. And as far as they're concerned, it's a really easy way to solve it. Just get rid of it. I want to play this for you, too. Stephen A. Smith, who really recently has been leaning into the um, race hustling thing. I mean, he's not just recently, but especially recently. He had some thoughts about a little sideline temper tantrum that Tom Brady threw on Sunday. Tom Brady was upset about the way his team was playing started yelling at his offensive line, and uh, not an uncommon occurrence in football. People get heated. It happens. But Stephen A. Smith, he saw this, and, and, and he saw in it um, racial implications. Let's, let's see how he was managed to pull that out of the story. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we need to be consistent. Was Tom Brady passionate, or was he the angry white guy? Mm. Because if that was somebody else doing what he was doing with his offensive line, man, we would have been talking about, if that was a black man, we would have been talking about his temper. We'd have been talking about the fact that he might not need to act like that with the cameras rolling. I had no problem with it whatsoever. If brothers ain't blocking for you, you 45 years old, you behind the center, and you getting smacked around, you damn right you should get in their face. I have no issue with what Tom Brady did with them whatsoever. All I'm trying to say is that when a black quarterback does that, I don't want to hear nothing about it since nobody's saying anything about Tom Brady doing it. And I also don't want to hear about stuff being overblown. He went to Robert Kraft's wedding on a Friday night. He missed the walkthrough, etc. They clearly are not on the same page. They don't seem to have everything right. in order. If this was somebody, now in that regard, there is a Tom Brady category that's separate and apart from everybody else. The anger part, when he's getting on the offensive lineman, no, that everybody should be lumped into there. But in terms of him missing a, a, a walkthrough uh, because he went to the wedding, damn it, that's Tom Brady. Well, I'm that I will forgive him for. I'm 
You know, it just makes it, it encourages uh, Stephen A. Smith because he always has, he's, he's babbling incoherently and he's always got someone else in the room with him that's uh, the yes man. And so he's, he's saying things that don't make any sense. And there's someone in the background you always hear about, mm-hmm, yep, yep, right? Nothing he says there makes any sense at all. Well, why, why? People aren't criticizing Tom Brady because he's a white guy. What are you talking about? Everyone's criticizing him before. I, I, I heard about it, and I don't follow the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What are, you, what are you talking about? This is the advantage you have if you're a leftist. That you don't have, there's, there's, you, know, you, you can decide what elements of reality you want to acknowledge. And you can take those little pieces and then create your own alternative universe, of course, which is what he's doing here. And so he's created a universe where, where white athletes who have temper tantrums aren't criticized for it. It, and as though t- Tom Brady in general is not, doesn't, hasn't had his plenty of critics through his career. Um, is it creating this narrative where we are quicker, we're, we're quicker to criticize a black man, especially a black athlete, for being angry than a white man. Where, if anything, it's the reverse. Because, because it's always going to be safer to, to criticize the white guy than the black guy. And the, the reason for that is because people like Stephen A. Smith that are looking for a reason to racialize everything. All right, one other, uh, one other story I wanted to mention. This is from the Daily Wire a couple days ago. James Corden has been banned from a top New York City restaurant by famed restaurateur Keith McNally, who labeled the TV talk show host the most abusive customer ever and more. McNally took to social media, blasting the host of The Late Late Show as a tiny cretin of a man who had said that he has been 86th as customer of his restaurant, according to the Daily Mail. The term 86th has a number of possible origin stories. Um, well, who cares about the, give me the origin stories of the term 86th in the middle of this article. Um, the owner of the iconic New York Balthazar restaurant said that uh, James Corden is a hugely gifted comedian, but a tiny cretin of man and the most abusive customer to my Balthazar, server, my, my Balthazar servers have seen since the restaurant opened 25 years ago. And then he goes on to stories about uh, James Corden being abusive. I think that apparently the restaurant owner has relented and reversed course, and I think Corden apologized or something like that. But this has kind of opened up the, the floodgates, and now there are all these reports coming in, anecdotes, about James Corden being a miserable a-hole, basically. Um, same thing happened with Ellen DeGeneres. So he's getting the DeGeneres treatment right now. And same thing is happening right now, actually, with Bill Murray as well, for slightly different reasons. So you have these, you have these Hollywood types who have a brand of being nice and relatable and goofy and fun and whatever. And that's particularly the case for James Corden, Ellen DeGeneres. That was their whole brand. And then you find out that it's just that. It's a brand. It's an invention. It's a part that they're playing, which shouldn't be a revelation or a surprise, but somehow for so many people it is. You know, nothing you see on the screen is necessarily real. It might be, might be real, but it doesn't have to be. And often it isn't because it's, it's pretty easy to fake being nice on camera for 60 minutes at a time, especially if you're paid millions of dollars. But there's one other thing too, when I, when I see any story about James Corden, and that is, who are the James Corden fans exactly? Is anyone a James Corden fan? Ellen DeGeneres actually had fans. There were people that liked her. Maybe some people still do. Does James Corden know? 
See, D- James Corden, to me, seems like the Stacey Abrams of Hollywood. Even They even look similar. They've got a similar look, similar physique, and it's just, it's been decided by the media that this person is a thing now, and then you start seeing them everywhere. It's been decided that they're beloved and popular, but nobody in the public consents to it. The, the public didn't decide that the public loves James Corden and St- Stacey Abrams. We're told that we do. And then one day, sometimes we're told that we don't anymore. So we were told that we love James Corden, and now the media is saying, never mind, you don't love him anymore. He's actually bad. Well, the same thing ever happened with Stacey Abrams. Seems unlikely, but we'll see. Now let's get to the comment section. Who makes a Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. You know, fall is in the air, and our friends at Vincero Collective have um, sponsored this episode to make sure that all of our listeners are accessorizing their autumn outfits with premium watches, jewelry, sunglasses, and more. While other watchmakers have insane uh, markups, Vincero gives you the look of a premium lifestyle without breaking the bank. Plus, for a limited time only, you can get 20% off plus free shipping site-wide when you use code Walsh at VinceroCollective.com. Vincero Collective designs are exceptionally crafted. They make everything in-house, and they source their own materials. Everything I've ordered from them has been really top-notch. Vincero offers many attractive designs made with surgical-grade stainless steel, durable silicon, and uh, genuine Italian leather straps. In addition to their watches, Vincero just launched their commuter bag. This bag is specifically designed to look sleek while traveling. My favorite feature of the commuter bag is the luggage pass-through strap, so you can actually sit it on top of your suitcase hands-free. Vincero Collective also offers iconic sunglass styles with polarized lenses and 100% UV protection. If you don't have impeccable style like myself, you should consider Vincero for a holiday gift for someone you love. Buy it before they sell it. So get 20% off plus free shipping site-wide with code Walsh at VinceroCollective.com. Support this show and use code Walsh at VinceroCollective.com. Accessorize your life at an exceptional price with Vincero. Shell B says, Matt looks really handsome today. It's distracting. Well, I apologize for that. Um, although maybe the distraction is that you're not wearing your glasses. So maybe put those on. Uh Vincent Webb says, watching John Oliver's trans episode, I was waiting for him to mention Matt Walsh. think he missed his name on purpose, LOL, but got the heat anyway. Yeah, I, it, it does seem like a relatively glaring omission. You know, he spent, he spent 30 minutes talking about the trans issue and especially what conservatives are, are saying on it, about it. And uh, what is a woman not mentioned? None of that is mentioned. So it, it does seem like That's got to be an intentional sort of uh, working around it. But who knows? Um, Dr. Curious says, canned laughter is a clear indicator of a shit show. Yeah, well, it's not just that. It's it's really, it's the laziest thing imaginable uh, when you've got the the laughter. You know, you've got the laugh track. You're in front of a live studio audience and you have them there not only to laugh, but also to applaud. And... um, uh, I'm not revealing anything you probably don't already know. That it's like the audience is also they, they might pump in some of the some of these sounds to enhance it a little bit, but they do have an audience there. But the audience is being directed, is being told, you know, when they're supposed to react and encouraged to react, and it's it becomes this crutch. Now, if you're doing a comedy show, it makes sense to have a live audience. So I, I get that. If you're doing an actual late night comedy show, 
having a live audience makes sense. It's weird. It's weird when you don't. When they did these late night, not that I watched the late night shows hardly ever, but when they tried to do them without an audience during COVID, it was just strange. But that's where you really have to decide. And this is what, this is one of the things, this is the John Oliver and, and um, John Stewart, they get away with this where it's like they can't decide if they're, if they want to be comedians or if they want to be these kind of serious social commentators. And that also allows them to kind of say whatever they want. They can always hide behind being a comedian. Now, I'm not saying that you can be a social commentator and make jokes and at least try to be funny. I'm not saying you can't combine those two things, but it's the style of the show. It's done in the style of a comedy show. And then, but then he, he launches into a 30-minute rant about trans rights. Um. And why do you want the live audience for that? Well, it's just so that you have, you know, you can you you can throw in your dumb little punchlines and you have the canned laughter. But then also, again, it's what they're really there for. It's not the laughter because there are very few jokes. They're really there for the applause. So John Oliver is a he's a political pundit. That's what he is. And but he makes sure that he speaks in front of live audiences so that he has applause on hand. He needs the applause there to support whatever he's saying. And it's supposed to kind of trick the audience at home. Because he says something, he gets to some, some you know, epic point that he wants to make or that he thinks is epic, or he wants us to see it that way. Um, and then you've got the applause of the background. It's supposed to trick the audience at home into thinking, wow, he really made it. Oh, he really took that, he really took that apart. That's, that's how we're supposed to interpret it. Uh, Mallow says, called it yesterday there'd be a daily cancellation of weebs. Knew the weebs couldn't tell Matt was obviously joking. I myself am an anime enjoyer, and I knew immediately he was up to his usual trolling. Y'all couldn't keep your mouths shut. So I've, I've seen this weebs term a few times in the last few days. What, what is that? You have to explain that to me. Maybe I don't want to know. Weeb, I, I assume from the context of Weeb is someone who watches anime. Where do you get Weeb from? I don't really care that much, but I have heard this term a lot. I don't understand it. Um, Raymundo says, I would unironically watch Matt reacting to some good old anime. DW already did something like this with Brett and Star Wars, so it wouldn't be completely off the table, right? No, it is. It's off the table for, for me. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And there were many people suggesting that I be subjected to that because I know, although you all claim to be in the Sweet Baby Gang, uh, you still enjoy watching me suffer. It's like one of your, your favorite things. You're constantly suggesting ways that I could be made to suffer. Let's force him to watch anime. Let's tase him. Let's, let's throw him into a tank with sharks. This is how you treat your cult leader? Um, and finally, 92 Jeep says... I'm so confused by John Leguizamo's comment because he hated that film so much. He would show up to the set drunk almost every time because he thought the film would ruin his career. Now, we're talking about uh, his, his, his Mario film, I guess, in the 90s. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. It doesn't surprise me. Um, it, but it, it did ruin his career. Well, I guess it didn't ruin it because he never really had one, exactly. But um, to the extent that he had one, it, it ruined it, and it should have. As you all saw on the show yesterday, we witnessed the greatest thing ever said during a panel discussion in the history 
of self-serving echo chambers. In spite of the leftist drivel spewed on stage at the event, a diamond perhaps created by the immense pressure of the panelists' cognitive dissonance was formed, and it was this, the phrase, you can't stop the Matt Walsh. Not you can't stop Matt Walsh, it's you can't stop the Matt Walsh. Um, And you can't, it's true, I am inevitable. And now, like all things I speak into existence, it's on a t-shirt. I made that demand yesterday, and just like that, the next day, it is on a t-shirt. So you can go to dailywire.com slash Walsh to get your You Can't Stop the Matt Walsh t-shirt today. Also, the corporate media agenda means the news is presented in a biased way. You know it, I know it, we all know it. Thankfully, there's a way to get the most important news of the day without their narrative, and that's by listening to one of the top news podcasts in Morning Wire. News episodes are available every morning, seven days a week, and they cover stories other media outlets won't touch. And every Sunday... Um, until the election, you can also tune in to Election Wire for in-depth coverage, candidate interviews, and much more. It's the most important midterm election in recent history, so you're going to want to stay informed. You'll find Morning Wire and Election Wire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Daily Wire Plus, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, we have another crucially important conversation for the daily cancellation today, and it begins with an I told you so. As I've been warning for years, and as the news media is now reporting, the proliferation of emojis has caused a breakdown of communication. Anguish, confusion, despair follow in its wake. Here's the New York Post report, and there have actually been a lot of reports about this in the last few days. I'm just choosing the New York Post, but uh, a lot of reports on the emoji situation. Here's what it says. Gen Zers are calling out the popular thumbs-up emoji for being rude and hostile, even saying, they feel attacked whenever they see it used in the workplace. After a Reddit poster confessed to being not adult enough to be comfortable with the thumbs up emoji reaction, others chimed in to agree and to call out other common emojis, such as the red heart. Quote, for younger people, the thumbs up emoji is really passive aggressive, a 24-year-old Redditor wrote. It's super rude if someone just sends you a thumbs up, they added. So I also had a weird time adjusting because my workplace is the same. Older workers appeared flummoxed by the reaction, noting that they use the thumbs up in work-related chats to signal, I approve, or I understood, and I will obey. Of course, you know, side note here is that none of these people are questioning why emojis of any kind are being used in the workplace to begin with. But the New York Post continues, on Reddit, some were less offended by the thumbs up emoji, but felt the heart symbol was actually the most inappropriate. Quote, to me, the heart is reserved for family and friends and has a more intimate meaning of love, while thumbs up is just simple agreeing, commented one person. I actually find a heart emoji weird for work messages. I use heart emojis for things like when someone says, I got a new kitten, or Susie did a really great job, added another. But the heart, uh, to many, may be falling out of fashion. A survey of 2,000 people conducted by Prospectus Global showed that a majority of people between the ages of 16 and 29 believe that you are officially old if you use a thumbs up or heart emoji. Now, apparently this list of outdated or passive aggressive emojis also includes, according to this study, um, it includes the okay hand, the poop emoji, the cringing face emoji, and the one with a monkey covering its eyes. All those are, you're not supposed to use anymore. And I agree that all of these emojis should be canceled, but so should, of course, every other emoji. Because if you're a literate adult, you should not be communicating with pictures. You should be communicating with words. Now, I realize that I am a lonely voice on this subject. As a society, we have fallen deeply into the emojis' grasp. Everyone uses them now. 
And every day, I'm, it's like invasion of the body snatchers because every day there's another person who I thought was anti-emoji and I see them tweet something and they put the emoji up. And I think, E2? Like, who, who, who's left? The emoji finds its way into every text or tweet or email or Facebook post these days, especially every Facebook post, in fact, because nobody under the age of 60 uses that platform. It is boomer central and boomers love emojis perhaps more than anyone else. And this, I confess, is honestly one of the great disappointments and I feel betrayals of my life. Because when people started using emojis, you know, when it first became popular, and I began my campaign against them, I assumed that I'd be able to form an alliance with cranky boomers who I figured don't want any kids on their lawn or any little dumb pictures in their emails and text messages. That's what I figured would happen. But to my horror, boomers became addicted to the emoji, unable to resist its siren song. And this is part of a now familiar, yet I think still little understood phenomenon, where the older generations, though intelligent and having grown up in a world where people did things like read books and write incomplete sentences, still older generations communicate in a bizarrely drunken and semi-coherent manner online. Emojis, all caps, misspellings, weird abbreviations. Most of all, they utilize the ellipsis with just reckless abandon. They drop the dot, dot, dot at the end of sentences for no reason, and sometimes even in the middle of sentences, giving otherwise normal statements a weirdly kind of ominous feel. My parents do this all the time. They'll say, like, uh, they'll they'll, they'll type out, uh, can't wait to see you on Thanksgiving, dot, dot, dot. It's just, I don't understand it. The point is that I've been left alone to fight this battle. The anti-emoji voices are almost nowhere to be found. It's just me against the world. This is my Alamo. Even here at The Daily Wire, many of my colleagues are profligate emoji users. My producer, Sean, sends me emojis as if to taunt me. It goes without saying that Michael Knowles is an unapologetic emoji enthusiast. The other hosts are nearly as bad, or else they've fallen shamefully silent on the issue altogether. Ben Shapiro doesn't use emojis, yet he never rants against them like I do, almost as if he believes that there are more important things to talk about, which is obviously absurd. So it's left to me to make the anti-emoji case again, as I have many times in the past. And the case boils down to this. It's very simple. Emojis stifle and dumb down human expression. By communicating in pictures, we are increasingly losing our ability to express ourselves through the written word. This is not entirely something I'm just making up. In fact, there, there has been actual research done which consistently shows that our vocabulary is shrinking. We know and use fewer words than we used to. We're less able to convey our thoughts and emotions through language. And this is at least partly, it seems to me, because we use little cartoons as linguistic crutches. We're devolving all the way back to caveman days as emojis are essentially just high-tech cave paintings. The written language of primitive man used to consist of pictures scrawled on the wall of a cave. Now our written language consists of pretty much the same thing, though the medium has changed. Now, people often defend their emoji dependence by saying that they need, for example, the smiley face in order to communicate that they're happy or in a good mood. But that's what, that's what words are for. You should be able to convey that emotional state through the use of actual language. The fact that adults struggle in this regard is, is troubling to me. I mean, pick up a history book sometime, read examples of the sorts of letters and communications people used to write to each other back in the old days. Even uneducated people, if they could write at all, were often able to express themselves with great depth using metaphors and creative adjectives drawing a picture with language to communicate their feelings and hopes and aspirations and fears. Compare that with 
the written communication of highly educated people today online. And it's like, me happy, smiley face, flag emoji, LMAO. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically the idea. Now, the response to this objection is that an emoji is shorthand. It's just a way of quickly making your emotions or your tone clear to somebody without having to write an essay. But economy of words, being able to convey tone and emotion quickly and efficiently, is also an important skill and one that the emoji prevents us from developing. And besides, as the, as the controversy documented in the post clearly shows, the emoji creates tonal confusion of its own. Is it a passive-aggressive thumbs up or a sincere thumbs up? Is it a sarcastic smiley face or a regular smiley face? Does the okay hand sign emoji mean that everything is okay? Or that the person using it is a white supremacist? There is no way to know. The emoji raises more questions than it answers, creates more problems than it solves. It's our way of avoiding the burden of writing incomplete sentences, but we pay a steep price for our laziness. The price is nothing less than the collapse of language and eventually of society itself. Or if it's maybe not quite that serious, it is still at least annoying to me, and that should be enough. Which is why, not for the first time, and likely not for the last, emojis and the people who use them are canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Thanks for watching. Have a great day. Godspeed.